Open up your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As you turn there, I just want to make a couple of announcements this morning. One, beginning this Wednesday, we are going to have the return of our midweek prayer service that we had uh, a few years ago. We went to small groups, and but we're going back now to a midweek prayer gathering. And so we encourage you to come Wednesday evening, this Wednesday and all the Wednesdays after that, beginning at 6 p.m., and uh, we're going to have a focus on prayer and, uh, as time allows, uh, a brief Bible study as well. So this Wednesday, join us here as we uh, intercede for one another, intercede for our community uh, as we uh, pray together. So important to pray together. So I'm looking forward to Wednesday evenings with you all. Also, one more announcement as well. Um, many of you know that my son Tyler is engaged to be married. Um, and so uh, we want to publicly invite the entire church to the ceremony, which will be on Friday, February 16th. It is at 3 p.m. And so Friday, February 16th at 3 p.m., all of the church is invited to attend the ceremony for Tyler and Jasmine. So uh, come be a part of that uh, beautiful ceremony as they uh, begin their marriage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's look at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. We come to a now a different section in 1 Corinthians over chapter 7, which we were in that chapter for quite some time, Paul has dealt with a lot of um, things pertaining to sexuality, marriage, divorce, singleness, widowhood. A range of topics that the church had of Paul concerning those issues. These questions come from them. As Paul told us that he was now addressing questions from them. Chapter 8 is another question that has arisen from these Corinthian believers. And it's regarding food offered to idols. This word food offered to idols is one Greek word. And what was going on in first century Corinth. Is they had these pagan Greek temples. That people would come to and worship false gods. And they would offer up animals as a sacrifice to these false gods. And the meat from these sacrifices was used in one of three ways. Some of the meat was burned on the altar, like literally burned to a crisp, for the gods that they were worshiping. Some of it was given to one of the pagan priests in the temple. And the priest would take part of that that he didn't use for the altar and he would bring it into the temple and it would be used for parties, dinners, get-togethers, other occasions, social activities there at the Greek pagan temple. The priests, whatever wasn't eaten in the temple that day, they also had a marketplace where the meat from these uh, idols uh, that was sacrificed to these idols was then sold to the marketplace. So the public could come like a meat market and buy some of this meat. And thirdly, the person who made the offering received part of the meat to take home to eat it. So the question that the Corinthians have of Paul 
is they all know that idolatry is wrong, and there's only one God. Paul addresses that here, actually, in verse 4. But what, he's, what their question is, since this meat has been offered up to idols, is it okay to eat it? And in the Corinthian church, there were some who said yes, and there were others who said no. These questions were probably something like this. What do I do if I think it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? But should I go to a wedding at the temple where it's being served? What if my neighbor invites me over for dinner and serves me this meat that he brought home from the temple? What do I do if I see my Christian brother or sister eating this meat? What do I do if I go to the meat market and the only meat they have for sale is one that was used in a sacrificial offering for a false god? Am am I supposed to just become uh, a vegan? (laughs) Right? Um, What do I do? Do we give up eating meat altogether? And how do I deal with my brother or sister who may have a different opinion than I do? Uh, I'm eating with someone who doesn't think it's okay, and maybe they've come from a life of idolatry. Should I still eat it in front of them, even though I think it's okay? There were all these different questions going on in this church, and and they were again divided over another issue. There was this belief at this time, obviously not a biblical belief, but a belief that was in the culture, in the society, that if you ate a meat sacrifice to an idol, that meat was somehow possessed by, de- by demons. And so if you ate the meat, then the demon will come inside of you. So you could see the fear that comes alongside of this kind of thinking. So what's Paul's answer to this? Well, it depends. And Paul will answer that question in different ways, using different analogies and examples over chapter 8, 9, and 10. But again, here's the Corinthian church, supposed to be unified in truth and doctrine in Jesus Christ, and yet here's another issue in which they were divided. They were divided over Jews and Gentile issues. They were divided over those who are married and those who are unmarried, and the differing views that went along with that. They were divided, remember from chapter 1, some said that they were on team Paul, others said they were on team Apollos, remember that whole thing. Which apostle fan club are you a part of? And yet, here's something else. There were differing people in the church that had different opinions about meat sacrificed to idols. Some people said, it's wrong. Other people says, an idol's not a real thing. I'm not eating it to worship the idol. It's not wrong. And the key principle that will be explored over the next three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, is that of Christian liberty. What is Christian liberty? It is the doctrine or the idea that helps us understand what do Christians have the freedom to do as a Christian? Like, how do I know if something is wrong or something is right? Well, obviously, the answer, when the scriptures speak to it and are black and white, crystal clear, then I'm under obligation, of course, to obey God because God has already spoken on the matter. But what if there's some issues where, you know, the scriptures are silent and the scriptures really don't speak to this particular issue? Do I have the freedom to do something that God hasn't forbidden, but my conscience allows me to do? Is there freedom in there? And obviously, yes, there is Christian freedom to do things that God has not forbidden. 
And you see, this is what some people like to do. They like to take their preferences, they like to take their rules, and force them on other people. Have you ever met someone like that? (laughs) Or been in a church like that before? They try to make their own convictions, their own preferences, something that God has not spoken to, and said, you have to do it this way, or you are in sin. And what they do, or what you do when you say things like that, is you make yourself God. And where God has spoken, we do not have liberty to do what we want. We have to obey in obedience to Christ. But where the scriptures are not clear or not spoken in black and white terms, then we have the liberty of conscience to worship God as our conscience allows. This is what's going on in Corinth. So Paul says, concerning this matter... That you wrote to me, a food offered to idols. He says this, we know, and the way Paul addresses this is just genius. It's brilliant. We know that all of us possess knowledge. You see that that phrase is in quotation marks. Now, the quotation marks are not in the original Greek text. But it's implied that Paul is now answering their question with a quote. This is something that was going on in Corinth. Both sides were fighting, and Paul is using their own words. Side one says, we shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and we all should know this is wrong. The second side says the opposite. It's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, because we all know that idols aren't real, and it's not, therefore not wrong. Both sides are claiming knowledge about the issue. They both are coming from a perceived factual basis. I have facts to back up my belief. And they're basing that on their, quote, knowledge. And Paul says, yeah, you both are right in that you both have certain knowledge. We all have knowledge. But guess what? Knowledge isn't everything. Now, I'm about to make some of you feel very old. But my, the majority of my childhood was during the 1980s. Literally, from three years old to 12. That was my childhood. One of the things I loved about the 80s was watching cartoons. As all kids do. One of my favorite cartoons during that time was G.I. Joe. A real American hero. I loved that show. At the end of each show, there was kind of like this public service announcement that was aimed at teaching kids a certain truth, right? And some of it was like, hey, kids, don't talk to strangers, don't do drugs, blah, blah, whatever, okay? You get the point. But at the end of whatever message they were trying to communicate, these public service announcements, it was always in the same way. The kids would be learning a valuable lesson, and out comes G.I. Joe, and he would say, tell the kids the lesson, and he says, uh, and the kids would respond to G.I. Joe saying, and now we know. And G.I. Joe would respond, and knowing is half the battle. I mean, does anyone else remember that, or is it just me? Okay, a few. <laughs> and knowing is half the battle. Thanks, G.I. Joe. He never told me what the other half of the battle was, but that's okay. Um, 
I use that illustration because what Paul's about to say to the Corinthians, in a sense, is, yeah, you all have knowledge, but knowing is only half the battle. And Paul is about to tell them what the other half of the battle is. And he says this, yeah, you all have knowledge. We all possess knowledge. Listen, this knowledge, in quotes, puffs up, but love builds up. These Corinthians were using their knowledge as a weapon to tear down their brothers and sisters. They were not acting with loving compassion. They just wanted to be right. And perhaps, you know, have you ever met someone who just likes to fight? Who just wants a confrontation? Who wants a debate? Right? Um, they, they just like the process of debating or fighting. Sometimes they don't care how they get there. They just want to be right. And you know what something that knowledge will do if left unprotected? It will give you a big head. And that's exactly what Paul says here. This knowledge puffs up. This word puffs means literally that, to inflate. Corinthians, your knowledge is giving you a big head. Half the battle. Believing you with very little love for one another. Which is the other half of the battle. Knowledge will inflate you. And you know the one thing that is true about inflatable things? They're easy to pop. They're easily deflated. And this is a great trap that many Christians fall into. Especially those of the Reformed persuasion. They have a head full of truth. They love the doctrines of grace. They love the attributes of God. They love the 1689. They love studying theology. And so much so that they're a detriment to their own selves. As pride takes over with so much knowledge that pushes any love that could remain out. Why? Because with a head full of knowledge... It leads to that sin of pride. I know this. I know that. You are wrong. I am right. And what gets sacrificed in the process is relationships. I don't care how you feel. I don't care how this will affect you in return. I just want to say at the end of the day, I told you so. This knowledge puffs up. It inflates. But love will build up. The word for build is the word for construction. It's maybe translated in some of your Bibles as edify. You know the thing about construction? It lasts a lot longer than things are inflated. Especially construction that they do on the roads, right? Am I preaching yet? Seems like some of that road construction takes forever. Knowledge that is filled with pride will not be as effective as true love that seeks to build and construct someone's faith. Not for the sake of argument, but for the sake of their own soul. Now think in terms of what Paul is writing to here in ancient Corinth. 
Many of these buildings were made out of marble and beautiful stone that were intricately carved and fashioned over time. It is far too easy to get a head full of knowledge. It requires little time to soak that information in. But you know what? It requires much labor and patience to exercise love. It's quick to win an argument. But it's a labor of time to exercise patient love. Here Paul is making a distinction. These Corinthians were so prideful about their opportunity to be right that they were not compassionately loving their brothers and sisters who they disagreed with because there are other things at play which we will see in a minute. And by looking at this it's a little confusing. Is is Paul saying that love is good and knowledge is bad? No, not at all. You see, the problem here in Corinth was not knowledge. All you need to do is keep reading 1 Corinthians. Paul loves knowledge. As a matter of fact, ten different times in this letter, he says, Do you not know? Ten different times. He wants them to have the right kind of knowledge. Knowledge is important. The problem isn't knowledge. The problem is knowledge without love. The Corinthians had no regard for relationships, their friends, their church family, or the lost. What they knew is what they knew. And they were ready to hurt other people based on their knowledge alone for prideful and selfish reasons. Let me just say this. Knowledge without love is not real knowledge. One of the things that is happening in Corinth was this. There were people who had been saved from a very idolatrous past. Some of these Corinthians worshipped the false, these same false gods at one point before they were a Christian. They went to that temple. They ate the meat. They worshipped whatever god that was being worshipped that day. So for them, now that they're a Christian... To have anything to do with this meat whatsoever is a great temptation to go back to their previous life. It reminds them too much of who they were and makes them stumble, especially those who are weaker in their faith. This is why some people don't want anything to do with this because of their previous experience. For them to eat this meat would be a temptation to go back to their former lives, their former false gods, their former way of life. This is why it was such a struggle for some of these Corinthians to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols because of their past. Some of these Corinthians really didn't struggle too much with worshiping a false god. They know and they have the knowledge that it isn't wrong because the idols aren't even real. If they eat it in front of the, but if they eat it in front of their friends that do struggle and have this past and cause them to stumble and they don't care they have a knowledge 
that has puffed them up, making them pride, proudful, and uncaring to their brothers and sisters. I have the right to eat this meat. And you people are dummies for thinking it's wrong. And I'm going to eat it whether you like it or not. That is a knowledge that puffs itself up. No, this is right, and you just have to deal with it. And that knowledge leads to pride and a great stumbling block to your weaker brother or sister. A modern example of this, perhaps, maybe we could spin it this way, because I, I don't think there's anyone here going to the, to the temple of a false god and buying meat that was sacrificed to it, right? I, I don't think that's a problem here. Let me give you an example, maybe, um, from that, that maybe would be a better fit. Perhaps someone has been saved from a life of being an alcoholic. They've struggled with alcohol their entire life. They've become a Christian. And they have now forsaken alcohol because they know the temptation, the addiction that that brings. One drop is too many for them because one drop could be enough to make them stumble and go back to their life of getting drunk in their former days. This is a real temptation to even be around the stuff. So they avoid it at all costs because they're afraid it might set them over the edge. But then one night they go to their friend's house. Their friend has no trouble with alcohol. He never gets drunk. He maybe drinks just occasionally and he doesn't think it's wrong. He has the knowledge that the scriptures do not condemn alcohol. It only condemns drunkenness. So he is exercising his freedom to drink. This is what Paul is saying in the matter of Christian liberty. Just because you have the right to do something, just because you have the freedom to exercise liberty in this area, for example, of alcohol, doesn't mean you need to use it, especially in front of someone who, is a, who could stumble by your example. To sit there and say, I have the right to drink this and I'm going to drink it whether the so person goes off the edge or not, is not loving, but instead is filled with pride. And at the heart of Christian liberty is that, is that foundation. We may have the knowledge that we have the liberty to do something, but we need to exercise love as well. Knowledge. Without love, destroys people. But knowledge with love builds people up. This is what Paul is trying to teach them. If he's acting with knowledge and love, he'll say, even though I have the freedom to have a drink tonight, I know that I should not exercise that freedom in front of my brother for his best interest. Because I want to build him up, not set him back. And there it is. Knowledge with love. Yes, I have the right information. But I'm not going to act in my own best interest. I'm going to act in the best interest of my brother who I know might fall. And again, that's the truth of this passage. But 
Some might be tempted to think that Paul's implying something else, which I want to clarify here. You might be tempted to think that Paul is implying that we need to forsake our knowledge for love. For example, just throw away your convictions and just love people. Accept people, affirm people. No, no, no. Just like knowledge without love is not true knowledge, the opposite is true as well. Love without knowledge is not real love. Real love cannot be divorced from knowledge. This is Paul's point. Just as true as you can't divorce knowledge from real love, the opposite is true. And we see this in the modern worldly mantra of today, don't we? We see that the world preaches all the time, love without knowledge. Love is love, they say. Love without knowledge is what is being just blasted at us on the media, on TV shows, movies, everywhere. They want you to throw away your knowledge in the name of so-called love and preach tolerance, acceptance, affirmation in spite of whatever knowledge you may possess. They want you to act contrary to your convictions or go against what you believe or just change your beliefs. For example, the LGBTQ movement pushes for affirmation or equality. Affirmation for them means acceptance. If you love us, they say, you will accept us the way we are in our lifestyle, which you call sin. You see, we cannot do that as Christians. Why? Because you cannot divorce love from knowledge. Because I know that what you are doing is sinful. And is in rebellion against God's created order. To just affirm you in your sin would be to divorce the knowledge God has given me for the sake of your so-called love. That's not real love. That's actually the most hateful thing you can do. God's word tells us that it is wrong. And that's the knowledge we have. So your definition of how to love you is actually not loving at all. Let me tell you what real love is in this instance. Love is treating you with dignity, respect, kindness, because you are an image bearer of God. But I will not accept in the name of love to affirm you in your sin with the knowledge that the scriptures proclaim to me. I will tell you the truth. This is what loving is. I will tell you the truth about what God says about your sin and about your need of repentance and about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will call you to repent and to submit yourself to God and his word. But I will always treat you with dignity and respect and kindness that you deserve because you're made in God's image. But real love tells the truth. Here's another example. Some delusional people are now saying in the name of love that your gender 
or your biological sex are not the same. So you can be born, some people say, with biological male and female genitalia, but still be able to identify opposite to what is natural. So today people get so offended if you, quote, misgender them by referring to them by the wrong pronouns. They say, if you love us, you will accept our identity and refer to us by our proper pronouns. Um, no. You see, to do that would be love without knowledge. You cannot separate the two. And this is exactly what even some prominent evangelical pastors are trying to do today. For example, and I'll name a name. The former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, in the last few years encouraged his church to practice, quote, pronoun hospitality, end quote, and to refer to people by their preferred pronouns for love's sake. I'm sorry, I cannot do that. That is not a matter of Christian liberty because the scriptures are clear and God has spoken. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Two genders. I cannot affirm anything else. Sorry. Not sorry. I cannot affirm you in your mental delusion or lie. That is not loving. That is hateful. Knowledge without love is not real knowledge. Because all you're doing is thinking of oneself, puffing yourself up, just as love without knowledge is not real love, because it sacrifices truth and affirms a lie. If you just have love without knowledge, you have neither. If you only have one, as G.I. Joe says, it's only half the battle. So in this case, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, Paul says, great, you have the knowledge. And Paul will address this. In some cases, wrong. Some cases, not wrong. You have knowledge. But let me tell you what's more important or what's equally important in this whole conversation and exercising your liberty to eat that meat or not eat that meat. Love that edifies, love that builds up, not to puff oneself up. And this is why Paul says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. As soon as you think you know something, you just proved you really don't know it. Why? Because you never stop learning, you never stop growing. It's great that you have knowledge, but it's only half the battle. Now, the next phrase is not where you think he'd go after making that sentence, but this is what he says underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Oh, this is again genius. It's not how I would have wrote it. This is way better. <laughs> if anyone loves God, 
he is known by God. In other words, Paul says, the question to ask yourself is not how much do I know, although knowledge is important. The question to ask yourself is not how much do I love other people, although loving other people is important. Because you see, you start from a wrong place. When you ask those questions, you start with yourself. How much do I know? How much do I love? The question you ought to ask yourself to determine Christian liberty in your relationships with other people is, do I love God? And if I do, then I've been known by God. Why? For God is the true source of knowledge. God is the true source of love. You see, what you should know should be rooted in God and his word. That's truth. And how you love should be rooted in how God loves you. What is Paul doing here? He's flipping the script back on them saying, you prideful people who are puffing yourself up with your so-called knowledge, is it better to know things about God or to be known by God? You're starting from the wrong place. And if your brother and sister also loves God, guess what? They are also known by God. The knowledge that supersedes all knowledge is being known by God. God knows your name. God has written you in his Lamb's book of life. God has sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And so as well, your brother or sister, whom you're trying to exercise knowledge without love, tearing them down, making them stumble because of your prideful actions and your so-called liberty. This is not Christian. This is the matter that he's dealing with here. Love builds up. Knowledge, this knowledge, puffs up. And so, when you're really accusing the other side of something sinful, eating meat, not eating meat, whatever, what you're doing is making yourself the true source of knowledge. Instead of loving your brother and sister who knows God, And God knows them. And then being patient. Laboring with love. More than your knowledge. To exercise your liberty. In ways that help build them up. Instead of tear them down. And divide your church. This is what's happening in Corinth. This is why Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 4. Verse 13 through 15. Rather. He addresses conversation a lot and and forgiving people in in Ephesians 4. He tells the Ephesian church, rather speaking the truth until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth with knowledge. No, speaking the truth in what? Love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Just substitute the word knowledge for truth. Truth and love cannot be divorced. They must be exercised in balance to be exercised properly. True knowledge isn't knowledge for knowledge's sake. True knowledge is the source and application of love. And it is in this knowledge that makes me think of others more of myself. It's in this knowledge that is sourced in love that I can find that it flows from God. How I love my other brothers and sisters who may disagree with me on this, even though I think I'm right because I have this knowledge that's coming from the scriptures, I need to understand that, that there's Christian liberty in this area. See, this applies over matters of Christian liberty. It does not apply if I'm calling you out for your sin, which is something sinful. We're talking about matters of Christian liberty here, where the scriptures are not clear. And we have liberty because God has not spoken. Another way to say it is love isn't love for love's sake. Like the world says, love is love. No, love is the application of knowledge that is rooted and flows from the heart of God. And so we could boast about what we know. We could boast about our opinions or about our preferences. But the word of God says that that kind of knowledge only leads to sinful pride. And ignores our brother and sister who could be a weaker brother or sister in this area. They could be avoiding that because of something that is stumbling in their life. And we need to use caution and let the scriptures be our guide. And know that what matters most is that we build them up, construct them. Because if we don't, we'll only pop our big fat heads with pride that destroys. I want to close with this verse. Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Like I said before, a lot of theologians are, are guilty of having such a head full of knowledge. They have so much doctrine without a true heart for people, right? That is, that cannot happen. Um, it was told to me by fellow older, wiser more experienced pastors when I was younger. Dan, don't just love to preach. Love those to whom you preach. I could, I could give you all my knowledge and try to impress you. 
It's not a whole lot, trust me. That only goes so far. But loving those, patiently shepherding, even those who disagree with me about certain things, even things that say, Dan, I'm not where you are on that issue. Okay, I love you anyway. I love you anyway. And my job as a pastor, my job as a Christian is to build through knowledge, not tear down. And let us be so infatuated with more than what we know about God. Let us know God. There's a big difference in there. And I encourage you to read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. He deals with this in chapter 3. It is better it is better to know God than to know things about God. And see that's what some people's problems are. You know lots of things about God. Some of you have been in Sunday school for 50, 60, 70 years. You've been going to church hearing messages. You've heard truth all your life. That doesn't mean you know God. What gets you into heaven one day isn't what you know about God. It's knowing God and God knowing you. Which is why Jesus says in that humbling passage that he will say to some on that day, depart from me for I never knew you. This is why Jeremiah says, well, the Lord tells Jeremiah in chapter 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. See, that's what the Corinthians were doing. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. Amen. Let us boast more in knowing God than being proven right to those we're seeking a debate with. And may we know that those who we are seeking a debate with over matters of Christian liberty love and know God just like we're loved and are known by God. May the gospel of the kingdom continue to go forth to penetrate stony hearts so that every heart may repent of their sin and cast their eyes on the Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross bearing the full weight of the wrath of God as our substitute, who died the sinner's death even though he was not a sinner, but then rose again on the third day. May all who believe in that know that if you do, you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord in humility and humbleness and adoration to Christ who died for you. Hmm. Paul even will make that point later on in this chapter. Don't you know that the person you're offending is someone that Christ has died for? How dare you 
build yourself up like that, to tear them down. Oh, may God use his word to sanctify you in these areas. And may we be found faithful to not just have knowledge, to not just have love, but to have knowledge with love, to have love with knowledge. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that the Corinthians asked such a question that your Holy Spirit inspired Paul to pen this answer. God, thank you. May this word sanctify us in these matters of Christian liberty. May we seek to build one another up instead of tear one another down by our opinions. God, may you be glorified in your church. Help us, God, to know how to handle these issues when we're confused or, and to realize what matters more. What matters more is not what we know about you, but that we know you and that we're known by you. Oh God, be glorified in your people now as we sing a closing hymn. In Jesus' name, amen.